Look over in John chapter 7. And as you're turning there, it has been our privilege to study the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. And of course, it has been a rare privilege for me personally to preach Christ. What a a great joy that is. As I think of the person of Christ, you know that he was born in an obscure village. He was the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked as a carpenter until he reached the age of 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He had never had a family or owned a home. He never set foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place that he was born. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. And while he was a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. We know that. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property that he owned. It was his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down, laid in a borrowed grave. Twenty centuries later have come and gone, if you will. And today he is the central figure For much of the human race, all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned together, put together, have not affected the life of this man upon the earth as powerfully as one man said, the one solitary life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a privilege to know him. He is, of course, for us, the greatest man in history. And yet he had no servants, if you will, that were paid to attend to him. Yet they called him master. He had no degree, yet they called him teacher. He had no medicines, and yet they called him healer. He had no army, and yet kings feared him. He won military battles, yet he, he won no military battles, and yet he conquered the world He committed no crime, and yet they crucified him, and he was buried in a tomb. And yet, as we know, he lives today. And so I praise the Lord for the privilege that we have to study this gospel. Now, as you zero in on John chapter 7, I just remind you quickly, it is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, where it was a national celebration. And here, we've just come off Christmas For them, it was a huge thing. It was a week-long, you remember, and it was a week-long celebration. Out of all the four celebrations they did, this was the preeminent one, and it was a time of joy. And what they were doing is remembering their wilderness wanderings. Do you remember that people kind of all came into Jerusalem and they lived in tents, either outside the city or just inside the city, or they lived in these things called booths for a week. And remember the brothers wanted him to go and make a grand entry into Jerusalem and he refused to go. And then remember later in chapter 7 verse 10, he went up late on his own. And in verse 14, he began to teach. 
And his presence, beloved, created a stir. Would you look again at 712 as he's there, as he, as he showed up at that wonderful event later than his brothers wanted. But it says, but after his brothers went up, he had gone up to the feast. He went up not publicly, but in private. And verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. And while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And so already within the time frame of when he goes into the Feast of Tabernacles, there is a growing hostility. Now certainly we're still early in John's Gospel, John chapter 7, but let me set the place for you. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's October 32, if you will, you know, A.D., okay, or we would say B.C., right? Uh, well, he's there, but it's 32 A.D., the way they counted the calendar. It's October he will be lifted up at the cross in Passover, at Passover, in 33 A.D. And so we say he's just six months prior to the cross. So he's two and a half years into his ministry. And there's a growing hostility of the re- religious leaders. There is a deep anger foaming in their hearts. There is hate towards him. It will tell us in verse 30, certainly verse 32, that they're trying to arrest him. But ultimately, they're trying to kill him. Look back at chapter 7, 1. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Look over at John chapter 7, uh, in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. And they even acknowledged, who is seeking to kill you? Look back in 719, Jesus said, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And so they're trying to arrest him, but ultimately they're trying to kill him. Now as you walk into, back with me after the holidays, John 7, if you will, from verse, I don't know, 15, 19, let's say 15, down through 36, there were three scenes, okay? And these three scenes are anchored in three questions. And those three questions have three profound answers that have been provided by our Lord. Now, we've already looked at the first two scenes. Do you remember the first scene is they ask this question. Where was Jesus trained? In fact, look back in verse 15. How is it that this man has learning or literally letters when he has never studied? They couldn't. Hey, where was this, where'd this guy go to school? Where'd this guy go to seminary? I mean, what rabbi was he under? What religious school was he at? They had no question because he was profound. And they didn't know where he got in. And now he's teaching, he's setting up shop, if you will, at the Feast of Tabernacles in the middle of the week, teaching, if you will, the principles that he's taught throughout John's Gospel. And he told them, I got it from my father. We looked at that. But then there was a second scene. They wanted to know where Jesus is from. They wanted to know his origin. And that was in 25 through 31. In fact, look at verse 25. Some of the people therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Verse 26. And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But 27, we know this man where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so they, they question, if you will, his origin. 
And they, but they say, but, but we know where he comes from. And if you look back in chapter 642, remember there was confusion there in their minds in 42. They said, chapter 642, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They didn't understand that he had a heavenly origin. He, had, he was sent, if you will, by his father. That in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. As it says in John 1, 1, and then it says in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. They didn't understand who trained him. It was God the Father. Secondly, they didn't understand where his origin, that it actually came from God. In fact, in a touch of irony, look at 728, where he says there, he proclaimed as he taught in the temple. Remember, he's teaching. Verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from. Remember, we said a few weeks back that that is a touch of irony. He's like, you don't know me. You don't know where I come from or else you would believe in me. He says, I've not come on my own accord in 28b. The teaching that I give you in 7 verse 16 is not mine. It is his who sent me. And Jesus just says, I know where I come from. I come from him. And we noted there that his origin is not primarily a matter of geography, though it is, but his origin comes from God who sent him. Now, as we left off our last time together, do you remember the response? Look at 731. It said, yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done And in the original language, there's a negative in there. It implies no. He won't do more than this man has done. In other words, what this man has done is all the creditation that was spoken of in the Old Testament that the Messiah would perform. But you zero in on 31. It says there, many people believed in him. And it led to a problem. And the problem was, They wanted to shut him down. They didn't want anybody to speak about him in 713. But the more he spoke, the more people believed. And that's a problem. So pick the text up with me in 32 through verse 36 is where we find ourselves. Let me read that briefly for you. The Pharisees, key, heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This little section in here in 32 through 36 involves a plot. It involves a plot. I've built this a little bit around three scenes that are anchored in three questions with three profound answers. Let's stay on that language. This involves a plot. When I say this, his departure involves a plot, okay? There, a plot really, if you think about it, is a secret plan or scheme to accomplish some purpose obviously the leader's plot is wicked but christ his own plot is pure 
So let me just walk you through this passage. I want to look at first the Jewish plot thickens. Okay. And then God's secondly providence is taught. And then thirdly, I want to look at the crowd's perplexity is tagged. Okay. So we've got a plot that thickens. His providence is taught. And then the crowd's perplexity is tagged. And I want you to see these three plots that reveal the motives and the thoughts of all involved. And at the same time, it calls you to believe in him. I, I would think maybe as we get towards the conclusion that this passage draws out a sense of urgency to us and for us. But let's look first at the Jewish plot thickens. The Jewish plot thickens. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priest and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Stop there just for a moment. I mean, the leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priest, and I'll explain that a little bit more, send thirdly, the officers to arrest him. They are panicked. If you make the connection, as we just did in verse 31, people are believing in Christ. The crowd, as it said, was muttering. And some were believing in him. Some were saying he leads people astray. But as he continues to teach at the Feast of Tabernacles in the middle of the week, there are people who are believing. And the people who are believing, it reached the ears of the Pharisees. It reached the ears of the chief priest. Something must be done. I mean, this guy could get us in a whole lot of problems is what they're thinking. And so they seek to arrest him. That's what it says there in verse 32 as you glance down again. They sent officers to arrest him. Now we know that, that they may look for the arrest, but ultimately they're seeking to take his life. And I think what John's doing here is just rolling out the hostility of Christ towards people, which does make me think we try to water him down today and make him look a lot better. And people cut away from the text anything that has anything of any bite. And yet John is progressing here really quick to show you that it led to the crucifixion and showing you what led up to the crucifixion. So it says they were arresting him, but in 7-1 in verse 20, they're trying to kill him, let alone they didn't want the people to speak about him or even believing him. Now, what's fascinating here, just a little bit, beloved, I don't want to confuse you too much, is that John, you know, you just read that, as I do, in 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd about him and the chief priest, he links the Pharisees and the chief priest together. Now, I just want you to know, when you read that, don't think that's normal. That would be like... Two enemies <laughs> linking together. I, maybe that's a strong word, but they didn't run in the same pack together. I mean, these are def- different groups of Jewish leadership. They were common enemies, and yet somehow, regarding the person of Christ, they bind together, they unite together for an evil purpose. And so they join forces, the Pharisees, do with the chief priest. You say, well, who are the chief priests? Well, the chief priest are usually those from a wealthy and powerful priestly family. So they were the respected leaders. There's different, uh, you know, caveats, if you will, of leadership. 
the Pharisees were particular about the law, were they not? Then there was a group called the Sadducees, but there was this group called the chief priest. They came from wealthy and powerful priestly families. But they combined together. That, that's what's interesting here. In fact, you remember in Luke 23, verse 12, where it says in a similar way that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this very day, it says in the Bible, they had been at enmity with each other. So when it, bounds, when it gets to the person of Christ, these people who are usually not one with each other are united together in their effort to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Pharisees, the chief priests, had their internal hatred of our Lord and it drove them together to this end, his arrest and his death. In fact, in your Bible, look over at John chapter 11 just for a moment. Let me just show you that there. John, and we'll touch on this again, but in John 11, in verse 45... You can see it there, or actually go to John eleven forty seven, where it says there that the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? Again, they're running alone, but now they're running together in the same pack. Look down at chapter 11 in verse 57. It says, now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And John's putting these two together to see that, again, they're working together. Look over to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 in verse 3. Do you remember this regarding his betrayal and arrest in 18.3? Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, watch this, from the chief priest and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so they're banding together, beloved. I don't want to confuse you on this because it does become a little bit, uh, it just gets entangled. But the Pharisees, as a group of people, belonged to the Sanhedrin. Not so much as a party, but as members of a group of men who knew the scriptures or thought they knew the scriptures. And almost all of the chief priests would have at the same time been Sadducees, okay? And again, faced with this threat, they bind together. And so here's the Jewish plot. It's thickening, okay? Now, technically speaking, only the chief priest and not the Pharisees had authority to arrest Jesus, And I think the implication here in John chapter 7 is that the chief priest sought to arrest Jesus with the Pharisees' support, okay? So look back in John chapter 7. They bind together. The plot is thickening. And it says there in verse 32 that they sent officers to arrest him. So you got these players. This plot is thickening. The, the, the ideal of these officers to arrest him is just simply the word for the temple guard. In other words, there was a group of people called the temple police or the temple guard or here these officers and they dispatched these guys who were given as their task to maintain order in the temple. And so the leadership comes together and they sent these officers to arrest Jesus. 
Now, now what's interesting now in verse 32 is we don't know what happened next regarding the arrest, at least at this point. John is a fabulous writer, is he not? He doesn't immediately tell us of the outcome of their intent. So he builds the suspense for his readers. And what Jesus does is they're dispatching these guys. He launches into a discourse regarding his departure from this earth. He has a very short time and then he will go to the cross and he is clearly on his father's mandate. Look back at chapter 7 verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always always here. He knows his time. He knows when his time is up to be lifted up on the cross. And so I take you from the Jewish plot thickens to the second plot is that God's providence is taught. His providence is taught. And by the word providence, we just mean his sovereignty. His providence is the way it works out in the details of human history. Look what Jesus said there in verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. In other words, he declares his providence. He teaches on that. I'm going to be with you just a little longer. In other words, God's sovereignty will be carried out. And he doesn't focus his answer here on his origin, but he focuses it, as we said earlier, on his departure. In other words, I think what he's telling the leaders or what he's telling the crowd of people whom he's teaching is, I'm not under your care. You can dispatch him. It's almost like omniscient. He knew that they sent these temple guards. Maybe they were standing right there. And and maybe you'll see at the end, we were going to arrest him, but we didn't know how to arrest him because of how he taught. But he just wants to make sure that as they hasten their plot to kill him, God's providence is taught. He says this, I'm going to be with you, verse 33, a little longer. And so as I mentioned, it's October 32 AD. Six months later in April, March, April, Jesus would be crucified at Passover. And after he was crucified, he would, of course, be risen, if you will, on the third day. And then he will ascend into glory. But I got six more months with you. And I just had to stop there to think that he's in perfect control. And you might feel like at times your life is hastening out of control. Okay, But God is in perfect control. When we were at the board meeting, even just, uh, I don't know, a week ago or two weeks ago with Shannon, we prayed for a woman who's been very, very gracious to the SOS ministry. And she came in and uh, we prayed with her because she just found out at December time she's in fourth stage of cancer. You know, at times our life looks like it's unraveling. But the truth is, is God's in providential control. He's in sovereign control, but he's working all the details out. And Jesus says, you're going to come arrest me, but I want you to know I'm on my father's timetable. I'm on on his place, his time, okay? And then he says, after a little while, look at verse 33 again, beloved. He says there, then I am going to the one who sent me. In other words, his death, beloved, would be a gateway into the resurrection, into the ascension where he would be reunited with his father. 
Death would not be the final blow for our Lord. Death would not be the final blow for you. So in the midst of them, if you will, plotting this evil against our precious Lord, God's providence is being taught and being directed. So he says, do what you will with me, but I will be raised. I will be returned to my father in glory. Now, beloved, he mentions that there, but this is not new in John's gospel. Let me show you in John 14. Look over there. Look over in John 14, 28. It's not new that he was going to depart to be with his father. He kept telling him that while he was in his earthly ministry. Look over at John chapter 14 and verse 28. He said, you heard me say, and watch the language. Uh, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the father for the father is greater than I. And so he began to tell the disciples, both in John 7, John 14, that he is going to the Father. Look over at John chapter 16 in verse 5. He says there, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? He kept telling them, I'm going to go to my Father. Look at chapter 16 in verse 10. He said, concerning righteousness... Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And so he's teaching them about his departure. This is not new. Look over in John chapter 16 in verse 16. Very clear there. He says, a little while you will see me no longer. I'll insert my comment there. Because of the cross. And again, a little while and you will not see me. Right? The cross is coming. So some of his disciples said to one another in 16, 17, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And then, of course, his omniscience again. So it says there in verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. So there he has it. He's speaking in that language of his departure from this earth. Look down at chapter 16, verse 28. He says, I came from my father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And so he began to prep his disciples of what would happen. What's interesting is go back to John 13, and we'll get to this as we continue, but look back in John 13. He was very gracious to his disciples. He answered that question of where he was going. Look over at John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He was sent by the Father. He's being returned to the Father in that pre-incarnate glory that he had before the world began. Look down at 13 in verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. 
you will see a little while. In other words, I'm with you for just a little longer. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to, to you where I am going, you cannot come. Now, that, it, that almost sounds hopeless. I'm going somewhere, but you can't come. But if you just keep reading, it will be solved. Look at 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But watch this. But you will follow what? Afterward. I'm going to heaven. I'm going back into pre-incarnate glory with the Father. I'm going back to sit at the right hand of God. You will follow me afterward that where I am, John 14, you may be also. And so he builds confidence. So here's the, here's the connection, beloved. As the Jewish plot thickens to hasten both his arrest and his, and his murder, here God's providence is being taught. He's in perfect control. Perfect control. I'm going to be with you a little longer. I'll bring you with me if you trust in me. But regardless of what they do to me, God's providence will never be frustrated. It will always be carried out. And beloved, what's amazing is the cross would be the main end to achieve his crown. He would reach the glory that awaited him in heaven after the accomplishment of his work on earth. So here's hope and confidence. But Look back, though, in John 7. That hope and confidence doesn't come to everyone. Look at John 7, verse 34. He said, you will seek me. And I think he's talking to the Jewish leadership here. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. In other words, I think he's speaking after his death, after his resurrection. Now, listen. We're reading this. You know the end of the story. You know the end of the gospel of John. But imagine if you're a disciple and you're hearing that or you're hearing that that day in the temple. He now says to the leadership, I believe he's speaking to them there. It could be that the crowds need to hear it. You're going to seek me, but you're not going to find me. And where I am, you cannot come. I'm going to heaven and you're not going to heaven, if you will. And again, I think he's addressing the Jewish leadership here and what they're doing. And so here it is, beloved. The plot thickens. His providence is taught. And then thirdly and finally, his, the crowd's perplexity. They're just confused. And so he, he just tags that. In fact, you can see the confusion. Look at verse 35. Just like they didn't understand Nicodemus going into the womb of a woman, just as they didn't understand that he was the bread of life. Look at 35. The Jews said to one another, and I think, again, I said when it says the Jews, it could be the crowds, but I think he's pointing at the Jewish leadership. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean saying you will seek me and not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Here the authorities, I think, are just utterly perplexed. And so they ask four questions. It's not hard. Number one, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? I think they're just thinking humanly speaking. And I think, again, it's in a bit of a contemptuous tone. This man. 
mean, where can he go that we won't find him? We actually knew where he was born. We knew his mother. We know his father. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. What do you mean he's going to go somewhere where we can't find him? After all, we even know where he's from in John 7, 27. So again, it's, it's a perplexed crowd. Secondly, they said, does he intend to go the dispersion among the Greeks? And I think you know that the Jewish people only weren't in Jerusalem. They were dispersed all over. And so maybe they thought that these Jewish people that were no longer in Jerusalem, who were dispersed throughout all these cities, maybe he was going to go to them and, if you will, teach the Jewish-speaking people living in a Greek or Gentile province. And maybe that's what he's thinking. And so... Or or it could even be that he's going to leave us and he's going to go teach. Look at the last phrase of verse 35 and teach the Greeks. It could just be that he's going to go just teach the Greeks or again the Gentiles. Uh, You know, I I think John may have included this. Uh, It could be. We could ask him for utter irony. Because they're kind of saying it in a mocking way. Like, really? Really? Is he, this man, we we know where he's from. Is he going to go to the Jewish people of the diaspora? Or is he even worse than that, just going to go teach the Greeks, maybe the, the Gentiles? And I think it's irony because as he goes to the cross, as he's resurrected, the gospel would go not to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but to the uttermost what? Parts of the globe, to the earth. And so his gospel did go out, and it could have been that John just added that, that they were asking that for irony. And so, but look at the fourth and final question. He says there, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. What, what do you mean, you cannot come? I mean, maybe this is just my, my heart to you this morning. What do you mean they can't come? Oh, the, you, the disciples, if you're in Christ, you'll follow afterwards least to those. You'll, you'll come to heaven because I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have not told you so. But it is so, and I've told you that where I am, there you may be what? Also. But listen, not everybody. Look at verse 36. What do you mean? They're asking, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Why is that? Why, why can people not come? Why do some people come and why do some people not come? He goes to heaven. He takes those who are his children to heaven, but others, they can't come. Well, I'll show you. Look just at the next chapter in John eight twenty one. It says there very, very clearly in eight twenty one. So he said to them again, you see the language? I am going away. And he's speaking this again to the Jewish leadership. In fact, back up just before I keep going to verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury. It's not the Feast of Tabernacles anymore. As he taught in the temple, he's just teaching. But no one arrested him. Why? His hour had not come. But he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me. And here it is. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. In other words, some people, sadly, just die in their sin. I mean, that's just what the text says. Believers go, but other people just die in their sin, and that's why we have an evangelism team that goes out in the afternoon. You going to join them today? That's why Trevor Ice is going to be preaching the word. Some of those men at Teen Challenge 
know Christ. Maybe many of them don't. And so we preach the gospel. We're preaching the gospel this week to over 50 high school students. We would love to be part of that distance location center here because our desire is to raise up some men and some families who go both in pastoral ministry and to the mission field. Why? Because people are left in their sin. That's why. It just says it there. And so forget that. Have you believed? Right now as you hear me, have you put your hope and confidence in Christ? Because this is how clear the word of God is. When you reject him, you die in your sin. And because God is holy, we sang it this morning, only people who are holy and righteous can get into his presence. And the only way that you or I could ever become holy and righteous is for God to declare you righteous and justify you. And we talked about that last week. But there's no sin that's ever going to make it up into heaven. And some people don't make it there simply because they die in their sin. You say, but Scott, why do they die in their sin? I mean, I could, I mean you'd agree with me. They die. You agree that there is a heaven and there's a place called hell. You say, but, but why though? Well, I'll tell you, the scripture will. Look at John 8, 24. He just comes down from, you'll die in your sin in eight twenty one to eight twenty four. He says, I told you, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There it is. You've got to put your hope and confidence in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you know that is a very exclusive message. You know from this pulpit, from this church, from our leadership team, we will always preach an exclusive message. We want to train others to preach an exclusive message. This is not a popular message. Just like I mentioned last week that Calvary Baptist Church just appointed two lesbians to their pastoral team to lead that historic church, which Al Mohler appropriately said is not a different denomination, it's a different religion. And what's going to be interesting is what the three participating denominations will say about that, as I mentioned last week. But beloved, listen, people die in their sins, and here's why. They refuse to believe in the person of Christ. But I hold that out to you as hope. I hold that out to you as hope that we've got the, the, I don't know, the gospel. We got, maybe in my mind I was thinking, the secret formula. (laughs) We've got the hope of eternal life bound up in the message and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, two takeaways as you go home, okay? Two takeaways. Number one, there's a warning You say, Scott, why is there a warning? I just think, I don't want to read into it, but I think when Jesus said, listen, you're here just a little longer, what he said then could be said true now. Obviously, when he said, I'm here a little longer, I'm in October of 32, in April of 33 AD, I will be lifted up on the cross, but my cross will turn into my crown, okay? So he says, I'm just, but I just also think there's a note of grace in that, but a note of warning That just as people here today, maybe your children, maybe your grandchildren, 
maybe somebody in your extended family, first there is a note of urgency to this. I think Jesus was saying, I'm just here a little bit longer. And right now as I speak to you, you're unbelieving. It makes me think of Proverbs 1. You can look it up later. He said, but because I have called you and you refuse to listen, you, he says, you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. God says, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Pray for the students who are up at camp. I dropped on the bus and prayed with them as I dropped my own girls off. They have no idea how fortunate they are to hear the word of God taught. Amen. You don't know with some of those students in there if they'll ever hear the gospel again. And I just say to you, there ought to be a sense of urgency to what we're doing. Not, not weird, you know, but a sense of urgency. Like I think of, I mentioned last week when Patty was sharing the gospel or trying to with that lady in Canada. And I could just tell that lady just dissed her. I was kind of like, Wow. She's telling her about eternal life. And I could just say, I could just see that. I could feel it almost. That sounds weird. But I could just, I just knew it was like a short, cut you off statement. And she's offering her the profound truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, there's a warning, okay? But there's also, uh, secondly, a sense of urgency to the gospel and evangelism. He says, I'm going to be here just a little longer. And, and maybe in a different uh, uh, application, we can say the gospel may just be here a little longer, right? I was with a young man at Teen Challenge last week, just talking with him, listening to him. Got a big dollar sign on his cheek, okay? It's tattooed all over his body. And he's there. I don't think he's given his life to Christ yet, but would you pray for him? Because he's in the hearing of the word every day that he's there. And I just think there's a sense of urgency for if that man, who's 19, returns back to the streets, he will be in a worse condition than he was before, it says in the Bible. So we pray for these people. And there ought to be a sense of urgency to what we're doing. And I just pray that way. That this is grace when he says, I'll be with you a little longer. Or maybe I would say, this truth may be with you a little longer. That door may close, if you will. Today is the day to hear him. 2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Isaiah 55.6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is, what? Near. Now, I know he's sovereign, but don't be like this young kid. Have you heard of him? His name is Scott Artavanis. Somewhere in my stupid little 14-year-old mind, remember when I told you that in my testimony, when the moon turns blood red, I'll give my life to Christ. But right now, I don't want to give my life to Christ. 
Right now, I'd like my relationships. I'd like the parties. I'd like the alcohol. I'd probably like the women. And I'm reasoning all that way and putting them off. But praise God that the hound of heaven was greater. Praise God that 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. It could be that one day he won't be near. Hebrews 4, 7 says today, if you hear his voice, and this is to you, do not harden your hearts. Don't do it. Because those people who harden their hearts, you go look in Psalm 95, never entered into his rest, which is another way to say they never entered into heaven. And so we have a sense of urgency, beloved, don't we? Just look finally what Jesus said, and we'll pick it up next week. When he said, I know or in John 7, excuse me, in John 7, he says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's our prayer, amen, as we go. Live with a warning. Talk to people about that gently. But listen, live with a sense of urgency because he's coming.